0: So we're, uh, we're coming in to the last message in the series we've, we've been in now for the last several weeks together, Triple Threat, uh, the constant assault on our relationship with God. And uh, as we wrap up, uh, the last aspect of that Triple Threat that we're going to be talking about today is uh, the pride of life, the pride of life. And uh, this is also found in 1 John two sixteen. That's where each of the Triple Threats are are listed for us. And so 1 John 2, 16 again says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, we've talked about that already, and now today the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And in the original Greek that uh, this was written in, the Apostle John used a word for pride that describes uh, an arrogance, in getting all you want from life. It's kind of kind of strutting around, boasting about all that life has to offer you, that, that your confidence is in, your reliance is on that, and then you're full of this, this arrogance and conceit at having been able to grab onto that. So you know that, that life just offers you everything you want, and you just go after it, and you grab it, and, and that just fills you with this This very arrogant confidence. That's what John used to describe the pride of life. Some translations, in fact, you may may have this in yours, uh, your copy of God's Word, it may say pride in one's possessions. Um, There is an aspect of materialism to it, to be sure, but it's more like pride in what you've been able to achieve. From life, it's it's like picture a a wet washcloth that you're just wringing out, you know, till there's just nothing left. Uh, that's the concept here. It's people that go out into life, into the world, and they just wring it dry for their own agenda, for their own purposes. So, pride of life, the person that um, is guilty of that particular area of of sin and of the triple threat, um, that particular person is just full of, of self-confidence, self-reliance, and conceit. That's what's kind of wrapped up in, uh, in this phrase, the pride of life. And the pride of life, I think, is the most subtle of all the specific parts of the triple threat that we've been talking about the last few weeks. Um, it's not as obvious. It's not as blatant. You know, it's, it's not... Um, as in your face and just right there in front of you and sinister as the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes are that we've been talking about. Um, what What the pride of life does is that it plays on our natural ambitions that we all have to better ourselves or to improve our life. And there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with, with having good ambition. There's nothing wrong with trying to improve your quality of life and the quality of life of your family. There's nothing wrong with trying to, you know, work hard and, and achieve things in life. That's, that's all good and that's all well, but the problem is that there is a very real, a very clear and present danger with ambition, when it comes to ambition. It's a short, slippery step between healthy ambition and harmful ambition. Good ambition is good, you know, wanting to, to make sure your family is cared for and provided for, making sure that, um, that you are applying yourself as much as possible. There's, there's nothing wrong with working hard and then having merits for your work, But ambition can very quickly and easily go from being healthy, good ambition to being toxic, prideful, harmful ambition. And it's all about our motives. It's all about our motivation. It's all about the heart. Why are we going after what we're going after? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we pursuing what we're pursuing? Is Is it so people can look at us with envy and awe at all that we are and all that we've achieved? Is it so that we can achieve glory for ourselves? Is it so that we can be lifted up? If that's the motivation, if it's look at me, watch me, it is all about me, then of course that's harmful ambition. That's the pride of life. That's the Frank Sinatra, I did it my way kind of living. And that's completely opposite to what the child of God, the follower of Christ, is called to be and called to do. As we just sang, our life, our whole motto for our life, our our mantra should be what we sang. It's not about me. It's all about the one who gave himself for me. That's what should describe the believer. So there is a very dangerous and very slippery slope when it comes to ambition. It's natural and really God-given to keep raising the bar in our lives, to keep getting better and going higher, but none of that is ever supposed to be just for our sake and for our own glory. That's the key. And because ambition is so dangerous and can so quickly get derailed, it's important to be on guard, and it's important to look at examples of people that have made that mistake. They've, they've gone too far in their ambition, and it got really dangerous for them, and then disaster happened as a result of that. It's, it's worthwhile for us to consider those ne- negative examples so that we can avoid making that same fatal flaw and that same mistake. Um, and one of the, the best examples of what can go wrong with our ambition um, and how the pride of life just comes in so, so quickly, is uh, the example of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And that's in Genesis 11, and so we're going to look at that together. Genesis 11 will be in uh, verses 1 through 4, and uh, so I invite you to look at that with me. And a little bit of backstory uh, to the events that take place in this passage that we look at. The, uh, the earth had been flooded. We know the story of the flood with Noah and the ark and after the flood stopped and Noah came out of the ark and his family, God gave Noah and his family a very specific command that was supposed to then be passed on and shared to all the people that came after Noah and his family. And that was this. Now that the earth has been completely destroyed, flooded, wiped out, you've got to start over, Noah. So I want you and and your family, your children, to go out, go forth, go out into all the earth, fill the earth, and multiply. We've got to start building the human civilization again. We've got to start over. So I want you to not just stay in one place. I want you to go everywhere. Fill and occupy the earth. and Be fruitful and multiply and, and just replenish everything. So that was a very clear command. And it wasn't just for Noah. This was a command for everybody. All of humanity. God said, I don't want you just to camp out in one place. Go out and fill the earth. So keep that in mind as we look at at this text. Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. What would that be like? Man, that would uh, certainly have some benefit, right? It'd cut down on, on some of the barriers that we have, the linguistic barriers, some of the miscommunication and misunderstanding. But that's what happened. They had the same language and vocabulary. This is shortly after the flood. And verse 2: as people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar, where Babylon would be. That's where where that would uh, be settled. So they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there, which is a direct contradiction to what God commanded them to do. He said, Go out, fill the earth. They said, Hey, this looks good, let's just settle. Let's settle here. Let's build our civilization here. In verse three, they said to each other, "Come, let's make oven-fired bricks." They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar, which incidentally was um, what they used for the ark. You know, so uh, maybe there was a carryover of that. I don't know. Verse four, they said, and here's where it starts to turn. Here's where the the shift happens. This is where the slope gets very very slippery. They said, "Come." let's build ourselves, it's all about me, it's all about us, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky, or in other words, a a tower that reaches into the heavens, a monument of our grandeur, of our greatness, of our ingenuity, of our intelligence, of all that we can accomplish, a tower to us. Let's make a name for ourselves. Pride of life, pride of life. See, at, at this point, there should be alarms going off for them. We talked last week about alarms should have been going off for David, right, for King David. Alarms should have been going off for them. Uh-oh, where is this headed? What is this saying about my heart? What is this saying about my mind? I, I have a desire here in this, in this moment to make a name for myself, to make my name great, Instead of making the name of God great or, or showing, declaring how great his name is. Let's make a name for ourselves, they said. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Which was the whole point. <laughs> that was the whole point. That's exactly what God commanded them to do. And so this was, this was a direct, conscious act of rebellion and disobedience, and it was a direct embracing of the pride of life. The pride of life. That very subtle, very sneaky, but deadly aspect of the triple threat that is constantly coming at us. It's not unique to the people at Babel. It, it wasn't unique to Eve, even though it began with her. It's not unique to anyone. It's shared by all of us. We're all susceptible to this particular type of attack from our flesh, from our sinful nature, and from the enemy, the pride of life. The pride of life is pursuing our own agenda instead of submitting to God's will. That's, that's a, a marker of the pride of life. It's pursuing our own agenda at all cost, no matter what, instead of willingly and consistently submitting to God's will, which we can easily find, church. God's will does not have to be this big and ambiguous mystery. He's made it very clear to us in the pages of His Word. You want to know what God's will is? Then know His Word. You want to live in God's will? Then live out His Word. That's how you find it. There, there, are, there are specific and, and very individual aspects of God's will um, that are unique. You know, like, like His specific personal will for you on, on a given subject might be different than mine. Um, like His will for you to live in a certain place might be different from mine. And that's going to be very narrow, very laser-focused, right? You know, but, but there's God's general will, His broad will that is there and and available for all of us to know, and, and that we all have a responsibility to submit to and live under. And all of His general will is revealed in His Word. It's timeless, and it's constantly relevant and always applicable. So, It's pursuing our agenda instead of submitting to God's will, His revealed, known will. That's a a very important marker of the pride of life to be aware of. Uh, It's also, I want to suggest to you that the pride of life is also living to build our own legacy instead of living to build God's kingdom. Living to, to establish and build our own legacy as the people of, at the Tower of Babel wanted to do. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make our name known. Let's make our name great. Let's, let's plant our, our flag here and let's build a monument to us. Let's build ourselves a city. Let's build ourselves an anchor so that even though God told us to go out and go forth and multiply, let's make sure we are anchored here so that not even God can scatter us. It's building a legacy for ourselves instead of living to build God's kingdom. It's, it's soaking up the spotlight instead of shining the spotlight on God and His glory. That, that's what... That's what marks the pride of life. And I want to give you another um, living, well not living now, but a, a true uh, historical example um, so that you can really connect the concept with what it looks like. We always, always will be better off if we can see it how it actually looks when we, when we talk about a concept like this. So another very profound example of just how uh, far the pride of life can go and just how disastrous it can be. And the example I want to um, have you keep in mind and, and look at with me is the example of King Nebuchadnezzar. Have you ever realized that uh, nobody names their child Nebuchadnezzar? I mean that 's just not one of those popular names in any decade, uh, and there 's reason for that. Daniel chapter four uh, verse 29 is where we 'll pick up, and I also need to give you a little bit of backstory. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had a, a pretty disturbing dream. He saw the, this great tree, and it was cut in, in several different places. It had, had its uh, foundation cut, and, and it, it became nothing. This great, beautiful, glorious tree with branches that spread over all the earth, and then all of a sudden it was just cut down, and there was nothing left of it. And uh, it disturbed Nebuchadnezzar. So he told Daniel his dream, and he knew that Daniel had a history of interpreting those dreams for various kings before Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, you know, think, think Darius... Uh, before him, and uh, that was what Daniel was known to be able to do. And sure enough, Daniel was able to know exactly what the meaning of this dream was, and he said to Nebuchadnezzar, God is, is giving you a chance, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's showing mercy to you. He's giving you the chance to repent of your pride and your arrogance, or we could even say to repent of the pride of life that is occupying your heart. He's given you a chance. This dream is about you. You are the greatest king in all the earth, but it's gone to your head. And God wants you to realize that he is a king over you. And as great as you are, he is greater still. And all of your greatness and all of your majesty, he has given to you. He's loaned it to you, Nebuchadnezzar. It's not yours. He wants you to acknowledge him He wants you to acknowledge His greatness and His glory and live now to make His name great instead of your own. And King, please do it. I don't want to see what this dream symbolizes happen to you. I don't want to see you brought low. And and here's what's going to happen, King Nebuchadnezzar. God is giving you a whole year. A whole year. God didn't have to do that. He could have said, I have had it with you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Or if you have watched uh, the Rack and Benny from VeggieTales, Who, who's watched Rack and Benny from VeggieTales? Who knows what I'm talking about? That's that's right. There we go. Yeah, Rack Shack and Benny with the chocolate bunnies. The bunny, the bunny. Ooh, I love the bunny. Anyway, you you can go. You can maybe substitute Nebuchadnezzar with King Nebi from from VeggieTales if you know what I'm talking about. Um, so he said, "I've had it with you. I've had it with you. You're you're consumed with yourself. It's all about you." I, I'm tired of He could have said that. And so, like, right now, this judgment's going to come on you. But God is so gracious. God is so gracious, isn't He? He's so good, so full of grace. And He said, I'm going to give you an entire year to repent, to acknowledge your pride, to acknowledge your arrogance, and to turn from it. If not, here's what's going to happen. Your kingdom's going to be taken away from you. You're going to be brought lower than anybody else has ever been brought low you're going to actually be driven out into the the fields. You're going to become like an animal. You're You're going to lose your mind. I'm going to take your reason and your sanity from you. I'm not going to just take your kingdom. I'm going to take your status. I'm going to take your reason. It's going to be bad, I promise you. So you better heed this warning. You better repent. And Daniel was even begging him, please, Nebuchadnezzar, heed this warning. Don't. Don't bring this judgment on yourself. So that's the backstory. Verse 29 says this Daniel 4 29. At the end of 12 months, so that year has gone by, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace, man, these kings, they need to stop walking on the roof of their palace. No good comes from it. King David had a bad, bad problem come from his walking on the roof. And now Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to see, does too. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Verse 30, The king exclaimed, Is this not Babylon the great that I have built? I think he probably talked like that. Um, I have built this, this great Babylon to be a royal residence by my vast power and for my majestic glory. Oh, Nebi. Oh, Nebi. Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared that the kingdom has departed from you. Just as was warned would happen. You will be driven away from people to live with the wild animals, and you will feed on grass like cattle for seven periods of time. Literally, that was seven years. This would happen for seven years. Until you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms, and He gives them to anyone He wants. At that moment, the message against Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle, which is actually a a real, known, still happens disease, a mental disorder called boanthropy. Boanthropy. And it it means that somehow, for some reason, a person actually believes themselves to be a bovine, cattle, cow, moo. I mean, you know, that's what they actually start thinking themselves to be. It's a real thing. You can look it up. It's been documented. Um, So this is what happened. God used uh, a real syndrome to afflict nebuchadnezzar with it and so that's what happened he, he ate grass like cattle his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws or for what we are familiar with now quarantine living like that could be any one of us from all the the shutdowns that have happened right hair like eagle's feathers and nails like bird claws Um, But that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, verse 34. But at the end of those days, again, that's seven years, seven years time he was like this. It probably took that long because he was just so bullheaded. Yep. Aren't you glad you came today? So at the end of those days, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, so now, now it's first person account. I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High, and honored and glorified Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And He does what He wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, What have you done? At that time, my sanity returned to me, and my majesty and splendor returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom, and even more greatness came to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the King of the heavens, because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Amen. What a turnaround. Isn't that awesome? What happened in Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind, what God was able to do. I mean, it's sad and tragic that it took what it took, but man, we can praise God that that it happened. I mean, I personally believe that this shows absolute true and genuine repentance and salvation. I personally think we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. Some people might disagree with that. I think we will. And uh, I would love to be able to find out what it was like for seven years to live like a cow from his perspective. But um, it's just incredible. It's it's awesome what, what Nebuchadnezzar's life actually shows us. It didn't end in tragedy. It ended in restoration from repentance. So the pride of life, it can do a lot of damage. It really can, and it's so sneaky and so subtle. Um, As we saw with with Nebuchadnezzar's story and his example, another thing that defines the pride of life is exalting self instead of exalting God. It's exalting self instead of exalting God, and we're all capable of of making that mistake. We're all able to do that. Uh, It's an attitude, a mindset that says, how great I am! instead of how great thou art. And that's an attitude that can creep into all of our hearts. So easy to do. It's, it's making sure our name is remembered instead of making the name of Jesus known. Making sure our name is remembered instead of making the name of Jesus known. That's what marks the pride of life. And this is so easy, so very easy for the church to do, Especially the American church. We can all fall prey to this. We can, we can all fall prey to kind of um, making our own personal kingdom or our own little spiritual empire instead of advancing Christ's kingdom and living to shine the spotlight on Him and on His kingdom. The pride of life never has any aspect, not even an ounce, of true spirituality to it. But, but as it relates to the church, we can all, all of us, especially pastors, we can get so caught up in expanding and in growing and, and filling our chairs and, and filling our building and having the latest and the greatest and making sure all of our community and, and everybody sees us as that shining church on a hill that city on a hill and some of that can come from a good desire i mean if we if we have chairs filled then of course that means we have people more and more people that are able to hear the truth of god's word hear the gospel if we're able to have um, more and more offered to the community we have a chance to impact our community more so here's that's what i mean about the sneakiness and subtlety of the pride of life see those are good things right I mean, having more, more people to come in and get ministered to, having more lives changed as a result of what's happening in your ministry, that's a great thing. But if we're not careful, we can look at all those great things happening and start saying, ah, look at what we're able to do. Look at what I have built. Look at what we're doing here. Man, we're on fire. And, and just those, those little attitudes can start to creep in, and they build, and they build. And then before we know it, we're no longer a church of Christ, genuinely. We're a church of us. So we've got to be on guard against that. It's so subtle. So subtle. Maximize ministry, sure, for the impact of the kingdom, and for the namesake of our Savior, not anything else, not anything else. We can all be like the people of the Tower of Babel. We can all be like King Nebuchadnezzar. It's just so easy. It's it's very fitting, I think, that the letter I is at the center of the words pride and sin. Don't you think that's fitting, that I is in in the middle of of pride and sin? Um, Because there is a big I problem at the center of all pride and sin. When it comes down to it, the very center, the very root of all forms of pride, all forms of sin, which pride is a sin, but if you you strip it all down to its barest form, pride and sin, everything that's underneath of that, it all comes back to me, myself, and I, and the love of me, myself, and I. It's a big eye problem that we all struggle with, we all deal with. And thankfully, all is, is not lost. It's not a hopeless situation. There is an antidote. There is a cure. There is a remedy. Here's what it is. Humility. Humility is the antidote for the poison of the pride of life. Humility. That's the antidote to the poison and the toxic... Uh, nature of the pride of life, and it 's the only antidote, humbling ourselves. That's the only thing that's going to fight against and eliminate root out from our hearts and our minds, the pride of life. humbling ourselves, humbling ourselves, humbling ourselves, humility. That's it. Matthew 23:12 says this: Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar, right? And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You see that contrast there? And again, we saw that with Nebuchadnezzar. Once he humbled himself, then God exalted him. So whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 1 Peter 5, 6 kind of echoes that, and it says this, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Or or in accordance with his sovereign timetable. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. And, and here's, here's something about humility that I want to make sure we all understand. And uh, I, I, don't, I can't think of a better way of, of introducing this, this thought than from this C.S. Lewis quote. I love C.S. Lewis. You should read C.S. Lewis if you haven't. Um, C.S. Lewis said this about humility. Humility is not thinking of less of yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. That's great. And that is good right there. See, sometimes I think we think that, um, we think that humility means I've got to be down on myself. I think that's how we view humility, which is maybe one reason why we, we are so um, averse to it. Humility is not just thinking down on yourself, thinking that you, you have nothing good you know, to offer. It's not devaluing yourself down to the point where you have no self-esteem, uh, no confidence in who you are. That's not good either, because in Christ, I mean, man, our identity is incredible in Christ, and we, and we, have, we have a lot to be confident in, not about ourselves, but in who we are in Christ. So running yourself down and, and not viewing yourself um, in, a, in a healthy manner to the negative, that's not good either. And that's not what humility is. It's, it's not um, just feeling that you are, are nothing, you have nothing to offer, nothing of value, no, no good at all. That, that's not what humility is. It just means that you think of yourself less than you think, first and foremost, about God. But then, secondly, you think about yourself less than you think of others. That's humility. It's, it's lowering yourself first under God, and then lowering yourself as Christ did, as his example was, lowering yourself before others and serving others instead of demanding that you are always served. That's humility. Lowering yourself willingly, willingly, even though you have dignity, even though you have um value it it doesn't change that it's saying i'm not going to elevate myself i'm not going to shine the light on how good i am i'm going to lower myself and shine the light on how good and great god is and then i'm going to make myself available to serve other people it's not thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less c.s lewis nailed it there i really think i think he did and so where does all this leave us where does all this come? It comes full circle we 've been for several weeks coming back each week to what first John two sixteen says, which is everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father. But it's from the world, and we've been talking about the reasons to avoid those things, the reasons to reject those things, the reasons to fight against those things, to fight against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. And now today, the reason we need to be on guard against and fight against the pride of life. And the reason for all of that is what's found in the last verse of this passage that we've been in this series with, 1 John 2.17. The reason for all of that, the reason to reject and run away from all those things, the triple threat is this. The world with its lust is passing away. The world with its lust, the world with its lust of the flesh, with its lust of the eyes, with the pride of life, all of that, the whole system of the the lost, wicked world is passing away. So don't cling to it. Don't be anchored to something that's already sinking. It's a sinking ship. Don't tether yourself to that. Rather, be this kind of person, the second half of this verse, but the one who does the will of God, which I said earlier on, is revealed to us. It's made plain. We can read it in our own language. In His Word, it's available to know and to live out. But the one who does the will of God remains or abides forever. The world is passing away but the one who does the will of God will remain forever. This is just like our theme for the church for the year. Thriving by abiding. Thriving by abiding. We, we spent a whole series in January on that. Thriving by abiding. What that looks like. What that means. And that's the theme for our church. That in every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our ministry, that we want to be a church that thrives. But we only thrive by abiding or remaining in Christ. We only thrive in life by living our lives in Christ and for Christ. It's the only way we're going to thrive. And that is a, a, just a, a drastic contrast to what it looks like to live in the world and to live for the world and to live like the world. It's not going to get you anywhere but disaster. But living according to the will of God living out His Word, living in Jesus, and living for Jesus. And that's how you thrive. And that's how you, you remain forever. No matter what happens to the world around you, it can't shake you. It can't alter you. It can't steal away from you the salvation and the abundant life that you have in your Savior. That's what we want to be. That needs to be our goal. Not living like the world, not abandoning the world either, reaching the world, but reaching the world by being separate from it. Reaching the world by living in and for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Siri, see, Siri, Siri understands it. She says, oh man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Don't you want to live don't you want to live in a, in a thriving manner? Don't you want to live that way? That's what I want for all of us. It's only found in Christ. So let's pray, and uh, then I know the worship team is going to come back up and lead us in a closing song. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the relevance and the power of your word. Thank you for making your will so easily discovered, so easily known, so easily understood. Not because we're just that smart, but because we have, if we're in Christ, we have the Spirit of God, the author of the book, with us, guiding us through each principle that we see, explaining it to us, helping us to apply what we read. And I pray, Father, please, as we've gone through this series, The Triple threat as we've seen how real and how dangerous each aspect of the triple threat is and can be, please, by Your Spirit, by His power, help us to apply what we've studied. Help us to apply what we've read and heard. And specifically today, as we've concluded by talking about the pride of life and how subtle that danger is, oh, please, by Your Spirit, Father, help us to navigate around it and away from it. Help us to be on guard against it. May, may the pride of life not be what occupies our heart or our mind. Rather, may humility mark all of us. As, as your Son set an example of for us, though He was in the very form of God, He did not consider equality with God as something to grasp onto, but instead He emptied Himself, taking on the form of a slave, And when He had come in human form, He humbled Himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Oh, Father, help us to flee from the pride of life and to embrace a humble way of living. It's the only antidote. And I pray that as we humble ourselves, that You would use us to shine light through, not on, but through, so that we can shine the spotlight on You and how great and how glorious You are. May that be true of us here at Faith Baptist Church, now and always. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.